kids up through fifth grade are dismissed to your classrooms, and for the fifth graders going into sixth grade, I guess this is your last chance to do that, and then you're going to be stuck in here with us forever, so uh, enjoy this last week. Uh, for the rest of you, please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 27. I'll turn there to Matthew, chapter 27. And uh, we are, if you've been with us, we, have, we are in the concluding stages of a series that we started in January called uh, Jesus and the Kingdom of God. And we've been walking through the Synoptic Gospels, which means Matthew, Mark, and Luke, just kind of jumping through uh, and looking at the life of Jesus and what it means uh, for us and what it means for our world. And we've been seeing time and time again that uh, Jesus uh, came to bring the Kingdom of God, and that Kingdom is, is an upside-down Kingdom. It is a Kingdom that is uh, upside-down uh, compared to the Kingdom of this world. And so um, this morning, uh, we are going to see um, the event that um, is the pinnacle of that, which is the crucifixion of Jesus. And um, so I'm excited to um, get into God's word and see what he has for us this morning. Thankful, as always, to the students for leading us in worship on this Youth Sunday. Uh, yeah, praise the Lord. Yeah, absolutely. I like to always say students aren't just the future of our church, they are our church in the fullness um, just as much as any of us uh, grown-ups are. And so I'm certainly thankful for them using the gifts that the Lord has given them and uh, blessing our, our congregation in that way. Uh, so hopefully you've turned to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to actually cover a lot of ground, um, but we are starting in, oh boy, hang on, let me see. We're starting in verse 15. Um, so uh, Matthew chapter 27, I'm going to pray, and then we will jump in. Heavenly Father God, um, it is uh, your breath in our lungs. We, we would not have breath um, were it not for you breathing life into our lungs, and it's only by your choice uh, that any of us are alive right now, God. Um, and um, Lord, I confess to you that uh, I so often take for granted that it is your breath in our lungs and what pours out is not uh, praise to you, God. I know that's true for all of us in here this morning. And so we confess uh, the ways that we've taken for granted um, even the basic fact that you give us life, that you are life. And um, this morning as we um, look to your word and we look to the cross of Christ, at, at once both the most horrific event in human history and the greatest thing that ever did happen or could ever happen, Lord, I pray that um, you just continue to open our eyes to your glory revealed in the cross, to your power revealed in weakness, God. And Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who does not yet know you, God, who does not yet have relationship with you, I pray that as we look at the cross this morning, that um, they would go with joy and gladness and lay down their burdens right at the foot of the cross, Lord, and their sin and their shame, and just find the freedom 
that we see right at the foot of the cross. Lord, for those of us who are following you and yet we still carry burdens and sin and shame and things that we just expect that you want us to carry on our shoulders, uh, wrongfully so, Lord, that we would too take those things to the cross and know uh, the fullness of joy in following Jesus. We love you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Bible is, um, we talk about a lot, one story, and yet in that one story, there are many kind of different angles that we can take to see uh, that it is one story. And there's one angle that we can look at the Bible and uh, as ultimately a showdown between a man and a snake. And I'm not talking about, you guys remember Steve Irwin, you remember that guy? And he's like, find these giant snakes, and crikey, mate, it's a big one, right? I'm terrible at accents, I'll never do that again. But anyways, you guys remember that guy? Yeah, signed up, yeah, and then he, I think he tragically passed away, right? And um, anyways, that's not really the kind of, I'm not talking about a literal showdown between a man and a snake, it's but a cosmic battle between a man and a snake, And we actually see that foreshadowed in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, all the way in chapter 3. I'm super thankful. I've, uh, over this uh, last few months, I've been really helped by, uh, there's a resource called The Bible Project. It's a free resource, and they offer classes online, actually, for free. And so I was able to take a class on Genesis 2 to 5 that really helped me kind of see this framework. So certainly recommend that uh, resource to any of you, um, but in uh, Genesis chapter 3, right, the ser- we know the story, the story of the fall of man. Uh, the serpent has deceived Adam and Eve, and they decided uh, that they wanted to be like God, right? That tree that God told them not to eat from, they decided, you know, actually, that looks pretty good, and I think God is withholding that fruit from me because he doesn't want good things from me for me, but I know that if I can take and eat for myself that I'll have all these good things, and so they have done that, and uh, now there are consequences for that action. And so God speaks uh, to the ones who are gathered in the garden, to Adam and Eve and the serpent. And do you remember who he speaks to first, or you want to guess? <laughs> Good. <laughs> Got a lot of mumbling. Somebody just guess. Someone said Adam, someone said Eve. You're wrong, it's a serpent. So uh, somebody didn't say the serpent. Anyways, that's what it's okay. We just, you know, just throw it out there. There's no shame in getting it wrong. God speaks to the serpent first and then uh, to Eve, right? And then to Adam. And uh, here's what he says to the serpent. It's really interesting. It'll be on your screen. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. Here's the important part for us this morning. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. All right, so God curses the serpent and then he says something fascinating. He says that the woman is going to have offspring, but then who else is going to have offspring? The serpent, the snake, right? And there's going to be hostility between the two. And he's not just talking about how people aren't going to like snakes, right? Who's like, who hates snakes? Most of us. Who's like deathly afraid of snakes? Like, yeah, okay, 
I put myself in that category as well. But just a fair warning, you're not going to like this sermon, okay? You might actually have nightmares, um, and I don't take any responsibility for that. But uh, that's besides the point. So we have two categories that are laid out for us right here in Genesis chapter 3. We have the seed of the woman, and then we have the seed of the snake. And he says there's going to be a showdown between a man and a snake. I got real crazy with the PowerPoint this week, okay? And I also broke like every graphic design rule. So some of you graphic designers are going to hate the PowerPoint. It's a little chaotic, but I think it's going to help us. Uh, These are the two categories that we have in Genesis chapter 3. We have the offspring or the seed of the woman, and we have the offspring or the seed of the snake. And this is what's interesting. We have to read it really carefully Does it say that the offspring of the woman will strike the offspring of the snake? No. Good job. Very good. What does it say? That he will strike the head of the snake. Right? So we go to the next slide. The offspring of the woman somehow will crush the head of the snake. But not before, right, the snake strikes his heel. And so, um, let's pretend that we just don't know anything about the Bible. I think one of the hard things about reading the crucifixion account of Jesus is that there's just such this inevitability. Like we know, you can go, go down to Rock Prairie Kids, you ask any kid that's down there, right? What happened with Jesus? He died on the cross for our sins, right? There's like this inevitability that we read, so we almost kind of just skip over. It's like, yeah, we know he's going to die on the cross for our sins, um, but let, so let's just try to back up as we think about the story this morning and just like pretend that we know absolutely nothing of the Bible and we're just reading it for the first time and we're just noticing things, right? This is the introduction to the whole Bible. So like this is like uh, the part of the movie, you have an introduction of the characters and then boom, the problem is thrown right at us here in Genesis chapter 3. And uh, so there's a tension that's going to need to be resolved in the rest of the story. And uh, there's three questions that we're going to answer. I'm just realizing there's, I probably should have made one slide with just these three questions, but we'll go through them. As, but I want to I lay out the three questions for us now so you can write them down if you're uh, the kind of person who takes notes. The first question is simply, like, who's the offspring of the woman? Like, who's... Who is that? Uh, who is going to be the seed of the woman? That's the, as we, again, we got I know we always want to jump to, well, it's Jesus when we know that. But, but let's, again, take a step back and think about it in terms of the whole story of the Bible. Who is the offspring of the woman? Question number two, how is he going to crush the head of the snake? Again, we want to jump towards by dying on the cross. And yes, we know that, but um, let's just pretend we don't. <laughs> So how's he going to crush the offspring? But then here's the question that, um, or how's he going to crush the snake? But then here's the question that is the one that we, I think we don't think about very much, which is what do we do with all those little snake babies? <laughs> right? Because if the offspring of the woman crushes the head of the snake, we, we still have a problem of snake babies. This is why I said you're going to have nightmares, but uh, it's okay. Just push through it with me. So those are the three questions that underline the entire storyline of the Bible. And uh, the first one is, who is the offspring of the woman? So are we talking about literal people? I think you can go to the next slide there. Are we talking about literal people and literal snakes here? 
Uh, is the seed of the woman just her family, right? Is it okay? Are we talking about like actual snakes? Well, we actually learn uh, from reading the very next story that it's a little bit more complicated than that. What happens right after this? What's the story about? Cain and Abel, right? And so we have what? The offspring of the woman, okay? So maybe if you're, again, if you know nothing, you think, well, all right, the offspring of the woman's gonna crush the head of the snake, so here we go. Cain and Abel. And uh, what happens with Cain and Abel? They both bring a sacrifice, and uh, God is pleased with Abel's sacrifice. God is not pleased with Cain's sacrifice. Strangely enough, we don't really know why. Like, we're not really given that detail. That's, that's for another sermon, but uh, the point is that God is pleased with Abel's sacrifice. He's not pleased with Cain's sacrifice, but he gives Cain an, another chance. In fact, he says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you to devour you, but you must master it. And it's almost like this this kind of visual picture of like the snake is ready to pounce, right? And so what does Cain do? Does he learn his lesson and bring a better offering to the Lord? No. He kills his brother. What is that showing us? That Cain isn't the offspring of the woman. Cain is a snake baby. So now we got a snake baby. And uh, then what happens? I mean, this is like, this isn't a stretch because this is literally what's happening right after each other. Then, Then what happens after that? The whole world is filled with snake babies, isn't it? Genesis chapter 6 tells us that the wickedness of mankind is just spreading all over the face of the earth. But... What's our hope? Well, we have a seed of the woman named a righteous man. What's his name? Noah. Noah. There we go. I'll say it again so we can all, I don't know, maybe we just need to wake up a little this morning. What's the righteous man's name in Genesis chapter 6? Good job, everybody. And uh, so God, he's very sad about everything that's going on. He's, He's heartbroken that the world is filled with offspring of the snake. Uh, But there's the one righteous remnant named Noah. And so he puts him in an ark and um, with all the animals. And um, really, what what does that remind you of when when a man and a woman are uh, in a place with a whole bunch of animals? Well, it kind of reminds you of the Garden of Eden, right? And so all the snake babies are destroyed and Noah and his family are saved. And so maybe this is God's plan to redeem the world through Noah. Except what happens right afterwards? It's, it's, the most, it's a strange story. You should read it for yourself. But here's the bottom line. Is that Noah finds himself in a vineyard or a garden. And he's surrounded by all this fruit. And he eats of it wrongfully. Gets drunk. And he finds himself naked and ashamed. You see what I'm, what does that sound like? That sounds exactly like the fall, doesn't it, right? Wrongfully eating from a tree and you find yourself naked and ashamed. And so it's just a little different, but it's the same, it's like the same story with just a, same song with just a slightly different melody, but it's the same thing. And so we realize, oh no, (laughs) this guy who we thought was the seed of the woman is actually a snake baby too. 
And so um, what happens after that? Well, the wickedness of the world is like ramping up again, and then they decide that they're going to build a tower um, so that they don't have to be scattered all over the world. And, and so God, um, God scatters them anyway, right, and confuses their language. And, um, and so now the world is covered in baby snakes, and that's a problem. So what does God do? Well, he chooses a righteous man, Abraham. And um, he says, through your family, you, the whole world is going to be blessed through you. So maybe it's this Abraham guy and his family, uh, Israel, right? And we, can just, we, we could go on and on about how uh, each time in the story, it looks like maybe someone's a seed of the woman, but it turns out they're a baby snake. But we, we don't have time for that this morning. But do you see what we're, get, what we're getting at here is that over and over and over and over again throughout the whole storyline of Scripture, we see that um, every hope for that person down there to crush the head of the snake falls flat on its face. And, um, and it just turns out we just got more baby snakes and until uh, you turn in your Bible from the last chapter in Malachi to the first chapter of Matthew, and you read about this Jesus guy, right? And, and then you start to realize, like, I think he's the one. I think Jesus is finally the seed of the woman because we see these opportunities for him to fail. We see these opportunities for him to be tempted and sin and he just conquers over and over and over again and he never messes up one time. And if it's not him, then it's nobody, right? And it turns out he's actually the son of God and so you got a good feeling about him, don't you? I think he could be the seed of the woman to crush the head of the snake. And um, he's finally here. But that leads us to our second question, which is, how is he going to do it? So if who will this be? The answer on the next slide is, it's Jesus. And then the next question is, how is he going to do it? How is he going to crush the head of the serpent? Because as you start to read the story of Jesus, you kind of realize it's not going to happen like you'd expect, right? Like with Israel, there were all sorts of wars and, and battles that were fought, and they were like destroying all these enemy nations, uh, the, all these <laughs> seeds of the snake, essentially. And uh, Jesus isn't going about it like that, is he? He's not coming with force. He's preaching to the poor and healing the sick. And like the lepers, he's touching them, uh, which you don't do. And he's uh, giving sight to the blind. And he's teaching people about God's kingdom. And in doing so, what do we start to see as we read the story of Jesus, of the true offspring of the woman? What do we start to see around him but all these baby snakes <laughs> that want to take him down, don't they? He's making enemies. And then... You read and read, and then you get to where we're at in the story of Jesus, and it surely seems like the offspring of the snake are winning. And so look at verse 15, and we're going to see what happens next. Now at the feast of the governor, now at the feast, excuse me, Jesus has already been arrested, we saw last week. 
Now verse 15, the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Go skip down to verse 21. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. Now, Pilate can't believe what's happening. In fact, his, what, the passage we just skipped over, his wife had just warned him that she had a dream about Jesus and that he was innocent. She said, don't have anything to do with this guy. He's innocent. And uh, he just can't believe that the crowd is asking him to release this notorious prisoner, Barabbas, over uh, this guy who he can't figure out what he's done wrong. And so, verse 23, he asks, why? What evil has he done? What do they say? They don't even charge him with anything at this point. They just say, they all shouted the more, let him be crucified. The offspring of the snake, church, are crying out for the blood of the offspring of the woman. And they can't wait to see him dead. They don't even attempt to answer the question of what he did wrong. They just hiss, let him be crucified. Verse 24, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, this is a fascinating verse, his blood be on us and on our children. Pilate's like, I'm washing my hands of this. This isn't on me, but it is on him. I mean, he, he didn't have to do it. He didn't have to deliver Jesus to be crucified, but he does. Uh, and the crowd shouts, his blood be on us and on our children. And uh, little did they know that's actually exactly what they needed, wasn't it? Verse 26, then he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And that's his death sentence right there. He's scourged and delivered to be crucified. And scourged means tied to a post and whipped with a whip that had like rocks and broken glass and just, it was, it was horrifying. So people would die just from that oftentimes. And um, this is just, you can't even get your mind around how awful this is when we take into account not only just what they're doing to Jesus, the Son of God, but when we take into account the entire story of Scripture, which is that finally we've, we've got our man, and the seeds of the snake are, are putting him to death. And then it gets worse, verse, verse uh, 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him, and they put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And again, there's an irony here. They speak better than they know. He is the King of the Jews. They 
are going to kneel before him one day, not mockingly, but in reality, Philippians 2 tells us that every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But here they're mocking him, they keep going. Verse 30, they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Verse 38, then two robbers who were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And they're just, they're mocking him. And I think it's fascinating Uh, In Matthew's account, especially, like he pretty much skips over the physical suffering of Jesus. He doesn't go into any detail about it, right? It's so understated. Uh, They say he scourged. They scourged him, right? They don't talk. He doesn't talk about what that is. And they say uh, they they crucified him and divided his clothes and cast lots for his clothes. Like the, the crucified is almost an afterthought in that sentence. Like he's not emphasizing the physical pain here and. I don't really know why that is. Maybe it's because this, that audience at that time was very familiar with the physical pain of crucifixion, and so um, he didn't feel like he needed to go into detail. But over and over again, the detail we're confronted with, and we always just want to ask as we read Scripture, like, what, what is the detail that's given to me? Because no details are ever given unintentionally. And so the detail that we're given is the mocking of Jesus. Take yourself down, Jesus, Mr. Big Shot, Mr. King of the Jews. Not so special now, are you? What happened to turning over the tables earlier this week? The the temple is my father's house. What happened to all of that, huh? What about all your disciples? Where did they go? Thought the Son of God would have a little bit more power than this. Take yourself down. They're hissing at him. They're just roaring with laughter. It's so evil. And we just got to stop and think about it and reflect on it and reflect on our hearts. We're going to close with the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. And that's just one of the hardest songs for me to sing sometimes in that verse. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Right? This was us. And, uh, it's true. For some of you, it might have been literally true. I've talked to many of you in our congregation who, uh, who were like, yeah, before I knew Jesus, I thought that Christians were just idiots, and I just make fun of them all the time, and, you know, how could you follow Jesus? And, and uh, some of you, like, have literally mocked Jesus. And, but others, for the rest of us, it's, it's, it's a heart posture and a heart position before we have the Holy Spirit says, God, you would dare have control over my life? Get real. Yeah, right. If you're so powerful, God, why don't you show me? Why don't you do something to prove it to me, right? That's our posture before God apart from Christ, and that's what's happening to Jesus on the cross right now. And so let's just freeze here in this moment as Jesus is hanging on the cross, just being mocked by everyone around him, all the seeds of the snake. And how do things look right now? Not good. 
It looks like Genesis 3.15 isn't going to happen, actually. It looks like the seed of the serpent is going to take down the one hope, the seed of the woman. And they're about to win. Um, or are they? This moment right here, church, is where everything flips right here. Look at verse 45. We start to see hints of it. Now from the sixth hour, which is noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Is that usually when it gets dark? No, that was an easy one. We should have gotten that one right. <laughs> is that when it gets dark? No. It's the first sign. Darkness covers the land. Things might not be what they seem. Seem. Verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's quoting Psalm 22. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. The seed of the woman is dead. And dead people generally stay dead. The snake thought that he won. The son of God has died. The greatest threat to evil and sin and death. The only one who was faithful, who wasn't the seed of the snake, has now been put to death on the cross. But is that the end of the story, church? No, this is where we can say, no, we know that's not the end of the story. Because this is the irony to end all ironies. The son of man, the seed of the woman, struck a fatal blow to the head of the serpent by submitting himself to death on the cross. And we see right away the shockwaves of this. Verse 51, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The dividing curtain between God and man has now been destroyed. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. There's a massive earthquake. And then verse 52 and 53, which I wish we had time to preach a whole sermon on this. This is crazy. And only in Matthew's account, by the way. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Boy, there's sometimes you read the Bible, you're like, oh, I kind of wish we had more than that. Um, so we'll have to maybe... Um, get some answers to our many questions about that uh, in eternity, but we don't, uh, we don't know any more than that right now. But that happened. And then verse 54, this is just the capstone, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. See, the head of the serpent has now been struck a fatal blow. He's not dead yet, but his fate is sealed right here as Jesus yields up his spirit. The son of man, the seed of the woman, 
has conquered the serpent by dying on the cross. And this is what is mind-blowing about following Jesus, that his death is the means by which he conquered death, that his body being bruised was the way to striking the head of the serpent. There is no greater demonstration of the power of God than in the cross of Christ. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul says people want fancy philosophies. They want powerful signs. You know what we have? A guy hanging on a cross. And the Jews can't believe it, and the Greeks think it's just laughable, but to God's chosen people, there's nothing more powerful than that. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, like, that's what you got. Other people might want supernatural signs or impressive-sounding arguments or philosophies, things that are going to win over the world, um, things that sound wise to this age. But if you're a Christian, what do you have? You got a guy hanging on a cross 2,000 years ago getting mocked by everyone around him. And this is the power of God. But here's the ultimate question that you might be asking, which is just, why? Why is that how he crushed the head of the snake? Why? If God is God, why not just crush his enemy into oblivion? The answer has to do with that final nagging question that we had at the beginning, which is, what do we do with all these snake babies? What about them? The whole world is filled with baby snakes. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 says this, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by, children, nature, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What side of that does it look, sound like we're all on? The seed of the snake. And so if God just wants to crush the head of the serpent, is that good news or bad news for the seeds of the snake? Well, it's bad news if he's just going to crush the serpent like we'd expect him to crush the serpent. Jesus could have done that if he wanted to, but if he did that, he would still have a world filled with the offspring of the serpent. You see that? We'd still have a world filled with baby snakes. And so God instead chooses to demonstrate his love for us and that while we were still snake babies... He sent his son, Jesus, to die for us, for those very ones who were hissing and mocking and beating him and putting him to death on the cross, sarcastically falling to their knees and saying, Hail, King of the Jews. For those very ones, he sent his son to die, and his death actually made a way for us baby snakes to become the seed of the woman again. In fact, it was the only way for that to happen. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. 
It says, in you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, it wasn't enough for God to just squash evil. He wanted to go one step further and take evil and make it good. And how did he have to do that? By being obedient to death, even death on the cross. So one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His death is what reconciled you to him. You were alienated and hostile in mind, and now you have been brought near. You have new life if you're following Jesus. You're not a seed of the snake anymore. You're seed of the woman. You see, your old flesh, your old snaky skin has to die. And you need to be raised in new life in him. You need to be born again. In fact, you talk about snake skin a, skin, a snake sheds his skin, he's still a snake. You can try to shed your snake skin all you want, you're still going to be a snake. But in Christ, your old flesh, your old self is put to death, and you're raised to new life in him. And you're not a seed of the snake anymore because you're part of the family of God. So now you're part of the offspring of the woman. And the death of the Son of God is the only way for that to happen. Man, it looked like the snake was winning for a minute, didn't it, there? It looked like his offspring were going to destroy the true seed of the woman. But little did they know, little did we know, that God in his infinite power and majesty and might was going to take the worst day in human history and turn it into the greatest triumph of good over evil that could ever possibly take place. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a baby snake his treasure. Praise the Lord. Amen. This is good news. Amen. Let's pray and then let's sing together. God. Wow. Only you, God. From the very beginning, you knew all of it. You knew all of what was going to take place. You knew the pain the beatings, the mocking, the nails in his hands and feet. Your wrath poured out on your son so that we can be reconciled. And it's just amazing, God. We praise you. You are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. And God, if you've done that, if you've sent your son to adopt us into your family, then how could we continue to walk in sin and shame and the burdens that we carry? So Lord, may the cross of Christ compel us to bring those burdens and drop them at your feet, Lord. Whatever those are, 
In a room like this, there are many burdens. There are many uh, things we're ashamed of. Many battles, many things we struggle with. Many traps we fall into. Many things we think that we'll never be rid of. Many sleepless nights. Many feelings of hopelessness and despair. Much worry, much anxiety, much depression, much fear. All of those things have been taken care of at the cross. The Son of God, your Son, hanging on a tree for us. How deep your love for us indeed, God. Whatever those things are, may we bring them to the foot of the cross today. Find freedom and joy and peace. And most of all, reconciliation, forgiveness. Praise you, God. In Jesus' name.